Do you love Python's async and await, but feel that you could use more flexibility or higher order constructs, like running a group of tasks and child task as a single operation, or streaming data between tasks, combining tasks with multiprocessing or threads, or even async file support? You should check out AnyIO. On this episode, we have Alex Gronholm, the creator of AnyIO, here to give us the whole story. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 385, recorded September 29th, 2022. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Compiler from Red Hat, an original podcast. Listen to an episode of their show as they demystify the tech industry over at talkpython.fm slash compiler. It's also brought to you by us over at Talk Python Training, where we have over 240 hours of Python courses. Please visit talkpython.fm and click on courses in the nav bar. Transcripts for this and all of our episodes are brought to you by Assembly AI. Do you need a great automatic speech-to-text API? Get human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit talkpython.fm slash assemblyai. Alex, welcome to Talk Python to Me. Thank you. Yeah, it's fantastic to have you here. You have so many cool open-source projects out there. We're here to talk about any I.O., but actually several of them I've covered on Python Bytes on the other podcasts that I run. And we've talked about SQL Code Gen and TypeGuard. And I didn't associate that with you specifically and back over to NEIO. So yeah, a lot of cool projects you got going on there. Yeah, too many, actually. I managed to hand over a couple of them uh, to other people, where Seaport 2 and uh, Sphinx Autodoc type hints, because I'm really uh, stretched thin at the moment. I barely have time for all of the projects that I'm maintaining. I can imagine. Uh, that's, you know, how do you uh, juggle all that? You know, it's... I'm sure you have a, a full-time job and you have all these different projects, right? How do you prioritize them? Yes, yes. Basically, I get the equivalent of a writer's block from time to time. So when that happens, I just uh, either don't try to code that at all or I just switch to another project. Yeah, true. I've, if you're talking about type hints versus async programming, like if you're stuck on one, you probably are not stuck on the other, right? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, we're going to have a lot of fun talking about all of them. I doubt there's going to be any writer's block or speaker's block here, podcaster's block. It'll be good. We'll have a good time chatting about it and sharing it with everyone. Before we get to that, though, let's hear your story. How did you get into programming in Python? I got into programming uh, at the age of eight. It was on uh, an MSX-compatible uh, machine. Uh, I started with BASIC, as uh, so many others did. I did some simple text-based games at first, uh, just... Uh, playing around. At some point, I got uh, Commodore's uh, 128, and uh, I did some uh, simple demos, graphical demos with it. Then uh, I got an Amiga 500. Oh, yeah, the Amigas were cool. They were special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I dabbled in uh, almost basic, then others, other kinds of uh, tools also. I don't really remember that much of it. Uh, then uh, at some point, uh, I did something uh, with uh, Mac that is Mac OS Classic. There was this uh, tool called HyperCard, 
it's precursor for Flash, basically. So that's something I, I did some things with, simple games and whatnot. Yeah, okay. Skipping forward a bit, I got into PC programming, like C++, uh, mostly C. Then uh, I think it was in uh, the latter half of 2005. No, actually, it was uh, much earlier, uh, 1999. I started with Perl, hated it. <laughs> then I think the next uh, step was uh, in 2005 when I got to learn PHP. Hated that too. And uh, <laughs> kept searching. Then uh, finally, finally in 2007, I got to know Python. And then uh, that was Lava's first site, really. At that point, it was, uh, I think, uh, Python 2.5. And uh, of course, I stuck with it. I did some Java professionally for a while, but I never really, really got to love it. It had this corporate uh, industrial feeling yeah. to it. <laughs> So I'm not dressed up enough to program my Java today. Let me let me go get my tie. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Python was really cool. When I started uh, learning it, um, my first practical application I made in, uh, in what, uh, 30 minutes uh, after starting to learn it. It's really staggeringly easy to learn. It is. That's one thing I love about it. It really is. It's one of the few languages you can be really successful with, with a partial understanding of what's going on, right? You don't even have to know what a class it's is almost, or what modules are. You can just, just write a few functions in a file and, yeah. and you're good to go. It's almost like it's English. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Raul out in the audience says, third time's the charm. The third language, you, you found the one you like there. Excellent. <laughs> and how about now? What are you doing these days? I've been working for several years uh, on a project, uh, very uh, complicated project uh, where, okay, this is always a hard part to describe it. Uh, it's a... Uh, sort of working well as application. I'm part of a bigger team. I'm the lead backend developer. It collects uh, IoT data and uh, visualizes it, and uh, it provides all sorts of uh, peripheral services to it. This is the first time I, I really uh, had to spread my wings uh, with databases. Oh, yeah. Okay. What technologies are you using there? On the backend, we use Timescale DB, which is a PostgreSQL extension. Okay. This is for storing that time series data. Then uh, on the back end, we use uh, my framework called Asphalt. I don't know if you've uh, encountered that one. I think it's really cool, but uh, it's not uh, in widespread use. It's, uh, it's not a web framework per se. It's uh, more like a generic framework uh, where you can compose applications from uh, a mix of pre-made components and custom-made components. What's it called? Sorry? What was it called? Asphalt. Asphalt, like the road? Yes. I don't know how to spell there's, There we go. Yeah, that's... No. <laughs> I did a search and I just found a, a, a snake and a python yeah, snake. Yeah, that, that's it. That, that's a <laughs> second thing. The python, the snake on some asphalt road. Yeah, you got to be careful here. Okay. Is it a little bit like Flask or what's the... What makes it special? Well, Flask is a web framework. This is a generic framework. You can build uh, any kind of application oh, with it. It doesn't have to be involved with web. I see. Any uh, you can either thing, not line necessarily HTTP. Yeah. So it could be UDP or it could be just... It doesn't even have to do any networking at all. Okay. You can build command line tools with it. You can just uh, have this uh, this uh, mix of components and the YAML configuration to, to give settings to them all. I think it... Uh, this really would require a whole different session. It does sound like it would be a whole different session, but this is news to me and I'm very interesting. Yeah, I haven't really advertised much. I'm working on uh, version 5 at the moment, which does incorporate any IEL support and uh, it brings uh, the tech uh, up to date. 
with the current standards. Okay. Yeah, this looks very asynchronous based. It's an async IO based micro framework for ne network oriented applications, it says. Yeah. And built upon UV loop, which is how all the good Python async things seem to be backed these days. Mm. So it has a lot of sort of modern Python features. It's got async IO, it's got UV loop, it's got type hints, those sorts of things. When you started in Python in 2007, none of those existed. <laughs> How do you see the recent changes yeah. to Python in the last five years or so? I would say that Python has been uh, developing at an incredible speed. I really love it. So many useful stuff are coming out with every release. I agree. Yeah, the last, basically from 3.5 to 3.8 or something, there were just so many amazing features that came out then. And now we're seeing these libraries built upon it, right? Right. right. All right, well, let's transition over to our main topic that we're going to talk about, which is what I reached out to you for, not realizing the other two interesting projects that I already gave a shout out to are also yours. We'll get to those if we got time. So with Python in 3.4, we had async IO introduced the actual frameworks that supported that. And then when it really came into its own was Python 3.5, when the async and await keywords were added to the language. And Python came out of the box with some support for great async programming. But then there are these other libraries that developed on top of that to make certain use cases easier or add new capabilities. And any I.O., falls into that realm, right? Yeah. So before we talk about any IO, we should talk about Trio. Yep. Have you heard about Trio? Yes, I have heard about Trio. I even had Nathaniel so, on the show, but it's been a little while. Uh, that was, it's been a while. That was back in 2018. I talked to Nathaniel. So Nathaniel Smith. So there's probably quite a few changes since then, actually. Yeah. Let's talk about Trio. Yeah. Actually, the last uh, version of uh, Trio was released just yesterday. The thing about uh, NEIO is that uh, it's an effort to basically bring the TRIO features uh, to AsyncIO land. So TRIO is fundamentally incompatible with AsyncIO. There is a compatibility layer called TRIO AsyncIO, but uh, it's far from perfect. So what NEIO does really is uh, allow users to, allow developers to add these uh, features from TRIO to their AsyncIO applications and libraries uh, one by one without making without uh, making a commitment. For example, in uh, at my work, I use NEIO for uh, just a handful of tasks. I think we should talk about the uh, features. Mm -hmm. So one thing, at least, uh, I should say to dispel any confusion is that the Trio and AsyncIO are both uh, like top-level async frameworks in that they provide an event loop right. and uh, NEIO does not. So it's kind of a meta async framework. I see. So it builds on top of these different frameworks, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it builds on top of these frameworks and their underlying primitives. Yeah. So for people who are not uh, familiar, Trio adds things like, like this concept of grouped tasks. So normally in async IO, you start one task, you start another. They're kind of unrelated, but even if they're conceptually solving parts of the same problem. And then with Trio, you can do things like create what's called a nursery, and then you can have them all run, or you could potentially cancel unstarted tasks. And there's other coordination type of operations as well, right? That, that's the kind of stuff that Trio adds. Yeah. So the point of uh, NEIO is, as I said, to bring these Trio features to AsyncIO. Right. It's, and because when you do Trio, it, it's an end-to-end -end async stack. 
which means yeah, things have to be built for Trio, right? It's like if I have, uh, let's say, HTTPX, it's, I don't know how easy it is to integrate that, those kind of things that are expecting an async IO event loop over into Trio. Well, we already have my own event loop running. Like it's, it's hard to coordinate the, the tasks, right? If you are talking about HTTPX, it had a Trio and a async IO backends. Now it defaults to the any IO backend. So it uh, runs by default on both. Okay. About any IO features, it uh, provides uh, Trio-like task groups on top of async IO. Uh-huh. In here, we should mention that uh, Python 3.11 has its own concept of a task group, but uh, the mechanics are quite a bit different. That requires a bit of explaining. Yeah, how does it work uh, here? The thing is, the async IO task group, so not this one, but the standard library task mm-hmm. groups, which are in Python 3.11, they basically just uh, start normal async IO task, and uh, you can cancel individual tasks uh, with using the task objects that come out of uh, the create task method. What sets any IO task groups apart from async IO task groups is uh, the way cancellation is done. And uh, since any IO was um, designed uh, based on uh, Trio, when you do start soon, it doesn't return any task object that you can cancel. Instead, cancellation is done via so-called cancel scopes. So each task group has its own cancel scope. If you cancel that, you basically cancel all the underlying tasks. But uh, it goes even deeper because this is a bit complicated, <laughs> so bear with me. <laughs> Cancellation is uh, not done on a per-task basis, but uh, on a per-cancel scope basis. You can have cancel scopes nested, so that if you start a task and it starts uh, cancel scope, you can just cancel that scope and uh, it cancels everything up to that point. Okay, so like if I call a task, if I create a task, and then somewhere inside for it to do its job, it also creates a task. Those can be grouped into the same basic uh, scope, right? So there's not these like children tasks running around. Yeah, you, you don't even have to start another task. If you cancel a cancel scope, then anything you basically await on gets automatically canceled. Bam. This is called level cancellation in contrast to the edge cancellation mechanism you employed by any uh, SEGIO. Well, in edge cancellation, you just uh, cancel the task once and it gets uh, canceled error raised in the task. So uh, you can ignore it, which is, by the way, a bad thing to do, <laughs> but then uh, the task won't be canceled again, usually. Yeah. There are exceptions to this, uh, which are uh, a topic of debate in the community. But cancel scope, basically, they define boundaries for cancellation. So if you say you cancel a task group's cancel scope, only the tasks started from that uh, task group are canceled, so when those tasks return back, so they, all the tasks are done, then the code just uh, goes forward from this uh, async context manager. Basically, uh, when all the tasks are, are done, then however they, they end, unless some raised exceptions, that's a different situation. If they were either canceled or successful, then uh, the code just uh, goes forward to the all task finished part. This is really neat. The other thing that's uh, that's standing out here as I think about these task groups. So for those of you listening, you just create an async with block to create the task group. And then in there, you can just say task group dot start soon and give it a bunch of async methods to start running. One of the things that's cool about this is 
it automatically waits for them all to be finished at the end of that context manager, the width yeah. block, right? The standard library task groups work the same way, actually. Okay. And those are in 3.11? Yes. Uh -huh. Yep. We'll see how the the mechanism will work. Uh, there's a new mechanism for cancellation called uncancellation of tasks. It's not really battle tested. It's something that uh, was added uh, fairly late in the game to 3.11. So it's not yet clear if there are edge cases where it fails totally. This is also a debated topic in the community. Sure. The other thing here that I wanted to ask you about is you don't say like create task and you don't say start, you say start soon. Why do you say, what, what's this like uncertainty about? Tell us about that. Okay. So start soon. It's actually does the same thing as create a task because uh, creating task doesn't start running it right away. It starts only running it on the perhaps over the next iteration of the event. Right. Or maybe not. Maybe the event loop's all backed up. Maybe it's the, the you know, it takes a while, right? Yeah. So it's basically the same as a loop that uh, calls soon. So you schedule a callback. That's all that tasks are. They are callbacks with bells and whistles. Start soon is modeled uh, based on trio, but it's, I should mention that there's also a method called start, which works a bit differently. This uh, showcases the start method. So this is very, very useful. This feature is not present in the standard library task groups. So basically, uh, it's very useful starting a background service that you need to know that uh, the task has actually started right. before you move on. So in the example that you have on the docs here is you create a task group and the first thing is to start a service that's listening on a port. The next thing is to talk to that service on the port, right? And if you just say kick yeah. them both off, who knows if that thing is actually going to be ready by the time you try to talk to it. Exactly. This is something I use in practice all the time. And this is different than what you would get just with the async IO create task or whatever, right? Yeah. And uh, even the new task group feature doesn't have this. This portion of Talk Python is sponsored by the Compiler Podcast from Red Hat. Just like you, I'm a big fan of podcasts, and I'm happy to share a new one from a highly respected open source company compiler and original podcast from Red Hat. Do you want to stay on top of tech without dedicating tons of time to it? Compiler presents perspectives, topics, and insights from the tech industry free from jargon and judgment. They want to discover where technology is headed beyond the headlines and create a place for new IT professionals to learn, grow, and thrive. Compiler helps people break through the barriers and challenges, turning code into community at all levels of the enterprise. One recent and interesting episode is there, The Great Stack Debate. I love, love, love talking to people about how they architect their code, the trade-offs and conventions they chose, and the costs, challenges, and smiles that result. This Great Stack Debate episode is like that. Check it out and see if software is more like an onion or more like lasagna or maybe even more complicated than that. It's the first episode in Compiler's series on software stacks. Learn more about Compiler at talkpython.fm slash compiler. The link is in your podcast player show notes. And yes, you could just go search for a compiler and subscribe to it, but follow that link and click on your player's icon to add it. That way they know you came from us. Our thanks to the Compiler Podcast for keeping this podcast going strong. So I guess you could, in the, the standard library, you could start it and then you would have to just wait for it to finish and then you would carry on, but it's like two steps, right? The workaround would be to create a future, then pass that to the task, and then wait on that yeah. future. So it's uh, it's a bit cumbersome, and then you have to remember to use a 
try accept in case that uh, that task uh, happens to fail. Otherwise, you end up waiting on the future forever. Mm-hmm. Another, I, I really like this idea. Now, the other thing that I don't see in, in your examples here, where I'm creating a task group and starting these tasks and waiting for them to finish, is management of the event loop. If I was doing it with my code, I'd probably have to create a group or a, a loop and then like you know call some functions on it and and here you just use any IO. What, where's the event loop being managed? Mm, I'm not sure. What do you mean? Well, like a lot of times when you're doing async stuff, you have to go and actually create an async event loop and then use the loop directly. And, you know, you're working with a loop for various things. And, well, there is that uh, uh, run command at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So basically the, you just say any IO dot run. Or async IO dot run. Can, okay. And I can, if even though I'm using the any IO task groups, I can still just, I can mix and match this with like more standard async IO event loops. That's the premise. So you can just uh, like uh, ease into it. Nice. Little by yeah. little. So for example, if I have a fast API web app and, you know, fast API is in charge of managing the event, managing the event loop. And if I've got like an async API endpoint, I could still go and use an any IO task group and get all the benefits in there. Yep. Okay. That's beautiful. I should mention that fast API also depends on any IO. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. How interesting. Yeah. I've seen Sebastian Ramirez talking about some, some little functions that he wrote and he's like, I would love to see these just get back into any IO. I didn't realize that fast API itself was using them. Yeah. Okay. So very useful. We've got these task groups. We've got the concept of cancellation. Another one that's not exactly cancellation, but is, is, sort of cancellation is timeouts. You want to talk about how yeah, you do I me- timeouts? Yeah, I meant to talk about that. Uh, as I recall, uh, in Python 3.11, there is uh, it's a similar construct. Uh, I think it was uh, with timeout or something, timeout or something similar. I don't remember really. But what this uh, move on after does is uh, it creates a cancel scope with a timeout. Basically, this is a very, very practical use of cancel scopes. What it does is uh, it uh, starts a timer, and after one second, it cancels this uh, scope. So anything uh, under that gets canceled. So in this case, just that uh, sleep command uh, gets canceled, and then the, the task just uh, keeps going. So the way you described it before, it sounds like if there was a bunch of tasks running, if any of them try to await something, they're also going to get canceled. Is that right? In this case, you mean? Yeah. No, only the part uh, that is within the... The wheat block. Right. Well, that's what I mean. But if you had done multiple tasks within oh. like the move on after, right? Like I say, I try to talk to the database to insert a record and I try to call an API and the database times out. Within a single move on after block, uh, you can only have one thing going on, which is uh, the await here. So even if you start multiple tasks from that task group, uh, they are not enclosed within that cancel scope. I realized that cancel scopes are a complex and difficult concept and I don't think I can adequately explain them, but uh, I hope that this will at least uh, give some shit some light into them. Yeah, it's a really cool idea because your your code could it's async, so it's not as bad as if you were to like lock up waiting for an API call or something that's going to time out on the network eventually after a really long time. But it's still yeah, cancellation. Still, you don't want it to clog up your code, right? You want to just say, "Sorry, this isn't working." Yeah, one place where I often use a construct like this is finalization. So when you are closing up things, then you can use this 
this move on after to the time of foreclosing resources. Yeah, that makes sense. Because you want to be a good citizen in, in terms of your app and release the resources as soon as possible, like a database connection or, or a file handle. But if it's, if it's not working, you know, like, well, I made, a, I made a try at it after a second, we're done. Exactly. And also, I should mention that this is where NEIL's biggest caveat lies. It is in, in finalization. I often run into problems with the cancel scopes because uh, the thing with cancel scopes is, is that uh, when you run code within a cancel scope and that co- uh, scope gets cancelled, then anything awaiting on anything within that cancel scope is always cancelled time after time. So you cannot wait on anything as long as you are within the cancel scope. And async your code is not expecting that. So it might have a finite clause where it does await, uh, say, connection.close. But that also gets cancelled if you are within an NEIO cancel scope. And uh, it's one of the biggest practical issues with NEIO right now. And um, we are uh, trying to figure out the solution for that. Just uh, something to keep in mind when you are sure. uh, writing NEIO stuff. Yeah, that is tricky, right? But the help is on the you way. say, well, I'm going to try to call this, this web service and I'm going to wait it. And if it fails you know, probably internally, what you want to do is close the network connection as well, right? But if you try to wait closing the network connection, yeah, so what happens there? Does it eventually just get cleaned up by the garbage collector or dereferenced? Well, a garbage collector doesn't work that well with async stuff uh, because the the structures could be called in any thread. So you you can't rely on that. You can't can't do any async callbacks in in the destructor. So uh, it's a better... Uh, it's a good idea not to try any of that and instead just raise a resource warning. If you're writing any IO where code, you would have either this shielded cancel scope or better yet, a move on after which shield true. What does that do? At least temporarily protects the, the task from cancellation. So let's say you have move on after, say, five and with shield true. It means that even if the outer cancel scope is canceled, your actual task will start running until it exits the cancel scope or if the timeout expires. So you have a five-second window to close any resources uh, that need closing. Got it. And so you just create a, you could do that, say, within your exception handler or something, right? Yeah. Okay. Or actually, I think finally, a finally block might be the best place to do sure. that. But depending on your use case, of course. Yeah, of course. Okay. Very interesting. So all this stuff about task groups and scheduling tasks and canceling them, that's very Trio-esque, but it's also just yes. a small part of NEIO. There's a bunch of other features and capabilities here that are probably worth going into. Some cool stuff about taking async IO code and converting it to threads or converting threads to async IO and similarly for sub-processes. But let's maybe just talk real quick about the synchronization primitives. These are things like yeah, so events, semaphores. Maybe not everyone knows what events and semaphores are in this context. Give us a quick rundown of that. Yeah, well, these are pretty much the same as uh, they are on AsyncIO. Many of them use just uh, the AsyncIO counterparts uh, straight up. So events are a mechanism for telling uh, telling another task that something something happened, something significant uh, significant happened, and uh, they need to react to it. It's often used to coordinate uh, tasks. So one thing doesn't happen before something else has happened in another task. Yeah, there might be two tasks running and one says, I'm going to wait until this file appears and the other one's going to eventually create the file 
right? But you don't know the order. So yeah. one option is to just do polling, like, well, I'm going to async io.sleep for a little while and then see if the file's there. Try to access it, you know, and do that over and over. A much more responsive way and deterministic way would be to say, I'm going to wait on an event to be set. And the thing that creates the file will create the file and then set the event, which will kind of release that other task to carry on, right? Right. Okay. Right. Moving on, uh, semaphores are mechanism for uh, saying that you have this uh, limited, uh, you have a number of limit, let's say a connection pool or something. And uh, you want to specify that uh, whenever some part of the code needs to act, needs access to this resource, uh, it needs to acquire the semaphore. So you set a limit and then each uh, time a task enters just a semaphore, uh, decrements the counter. And when, uh, when you hit the limit, then uh, it starts blocking until something else releases it. Right. So people might be familiar with thread locks or async IO's equivalent, where you say only one thing can access this at a time. So you don't end up with deadlocks or race conditions and so on. But semaphores are kind of like that, but they allow multiple things to happen. Say maybe your database only allows 10 connections or you don't want it to have more than 10 connections. So you could have a semaphore that says it has a limit of 10 and you have to acquire it to talk to the database. That doesn't mean it stops multiple things from happening at once. It just doesn't let it become a thousand at once, right? Exactly. I really like this idea. And I was showing some people some web scraping work with async IO, where it's like, oh, let's go create a whole bunch of HTTPX requests or whatever type of requests, you know, something asynchronous, talking to some servers to download some code. And if it's a limited set, you know, no big deal. But if you have thousands of URLs to go hit, well, then how do you manage not killing your network or overloading that? And the semaphore actually would be perfect. So for people listening, the way that you do it is you create a task group and then just you pass the semaphore to start soon. That's really clean. And then any IO takes care of it, just making sure it gets access and then runs and then gives it back? How's that work? I'm not sure um, what sort of answer you are expecting, but uh, as I recall, this current uh, implementation is actually using uh, the underlying uh, async libraries uh, events. Okay. So there are actually methods to acquire and release the semaphores. It just implements an async context manager that acquires it uh, at the beginning and uh, releases it at the end. There's an event involved uh, for notifying the any awaiting task that it has a semaphore uh, a slot available. It's super clean. And the fact that you don't have to write that code, you just say the semaphore is associated with this task through your task group. I really like it. Actually, semaphores are not associated with a particular task. That's what capacity limiters uh, are for. Okay. So you can, you can release a semaphore from another task while capacity limiters uh, are bound to the specific task that you acquired them in. Okay. Yeah, in the semaphore example, was it being passed? Oh, yeah, it's just being passed as an argument, isn't it, to the, the task? And it's up to the task to, to use it. I see. Okay, so this other concept, the capacity limiter, yeah, it sort of does that. Yeah, so this is from TO. It's, it's very uh, similar to, uh, to semaphore. So you can set, you can actually set the borrower, but uh, in most circumstances, you want uh, the current task to be the borrower. And uh, limiters are actually used... Uh, in other parts of any IO, as, as they are in Trio, for example, to limit the, the number of threads that you allocate or the number of sub-processes that you uh, spawn. Sure. You don't have too many sub-processes, right? You've got a thousand jobs and you just, for each thing a job, start it in a sub-process, <laughs> yeah. you're going to have a bad time. Right. 
So as, as uh, documentation says, they are uh, quite like semaphores, but uh, they have additional safeguards. Such as? Well, they check that uh, the borrower is the same. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So by default, they check that the, the tasks they are used for both acquiring or releasing are the same. Yeah, nice. Okay. Well, this, I didn't know about capacitor capacity limiters. That's fantastic. I love the idea. Okay. Let's jump over to, you talked about the threads and the subprocesses. Let's talk about this thread capability that you have here. This is very nice. Any thread. What is this? Yeah. So this is also a model uh, based on Trio. It's uh, basically any IO's way of uh, doing uh, worker threads. So in async IO, you have these uh, uh, thread pool executors that do the same as uh, run sync. Async IO's API is somewhat problematic because you have basically two methods. So you have, uh, I forget the older one, the newer one is called two thread. The first one was uh, what it run in uh, executor, whatever, whatever it was. Uh, they both have their own issues. Uh, two thread doesn't allow you to specify any thread pool. So it always uses the, the default thread pool. And uh, there is no way to add that to the API because it was done in such a manner. Then the older function does have this parameter at, at the front. But the problem is that it doesn't propagate context variables, unlike the newer two thread function. So context variables, if you don't know about them, they are fairly recent addition to Python. Yeah, what are those? They are basically thread locals. Are you familiar with thread locals? Make a comma for people who don't know, like yep. thread local variables, which also exist in Python, allow you to say, I'm going to have a variable, maybe it's even a global variable, and it's thread local, which means every thread that sees it gets its own copy of the variable and where it points to and what value it is. And so that way you can initialize something at the start of a thread. If you have multiple threads, they can all kind of have their own copy so they don't have to share it. But that falls down because async IO event loops, when you await those, all that stuff is running on one thread, just the, the one that's running the loop. That's what you're talking about is that equivalent, but for async IO, right? Yeah. So code variables are a much more advanced concept. They um, Basically, yeah, as you said, uh, thread locals for async tasks. That sounds very tricky. I've thought about that. I have no idea how to implement that. So that's pretty cool. I guess Python would know. Yeah, the thing is uh, the event loop, uh, when it starts running a task, uh, when it switches between tasks, it runs uh, that callback uh, within that context mm. that the task is tied to. And uh, when you start to work with worker threads, then you need to see the same context variables in that worker set, right? Right. So this has been somewhat of a problem because that older method uh, in async IO for running worker threads, it doesn't propagate these variables, but the newer, newer function to thread does, but then you can, you can specify which, uh, which uh, thread pool you want to use. Right. Okay. So it's similar to the built-in one, but it, it gives you more capability to determine where you might run it. Yeah. When you call run sync, uh, it allows you to specify a limiter and it uses the, the default limiter, which has a capa capacity of uh, 40 threads. 40? That seems like a... Yeah, 40. Yeah, that seems like yeah. a pretty good default. Much more than that, and you end up with memory and context switching issues. Yeah. It was arbitrarily set uh, to 40, uh, but then Nathaniel in Trio. So I just followed suit. Sure. Yeah, so basically, if you've got some function that is not async, but you want to be able to await it 
so that basically run it on a background thread. Here you just say any IO dot to thread and then dot run sync and you give it the, the function to call and now you can await it and it runs on a background thread in this thread pool, which is really nice. Yeah, that's how it works. So one thing that I'm noticing a lot in the API here for any IO is often now for the synchronous functions, it, it's completely obvious why you wouldn't do it. But even in the, the sort of creating tasks ones, what I'm noticing is that the, even the async functions, you pass the function name and then the arguments to like start soon, as opposed to saying, call the function, passing the arguments and getting a, a coroutine back. Why does it work that way? It seems like it would make it a little less easy to use like say type ins and autocomplete and the various niceties of calling functions in editors. Yeah, there was a good reason for that. I can't remember that offhand, but at the very least, it's consistent with the synchronous counterparts like uh, run sync. Yeah, cool. All right, so we have this stuff about threads and you have the to thread, also from thread, which is nice. What's from thread do? Yeah, so when you are in a worker thread and you occasionally need to call something in the event loop thread, then you need to use this from thread to run okay. to run stuff on event loop thread. Right, because the the worker method is not async. Otherwise, you would just await it, right? It's it's a regular function. But if in that regular right. function, you want to be able to await a thing, you can kind of reverse back. I see. That's an interesting bidirectional aspect. All right, subprocesses. We all know about the gil, how Python doesn't necessarily love doing computational work across processes. Tell us about the subprocess equivalent. This is a really relatively easy way to both run task in a subprocess and then opening uh, arbitrary executables uh, for uh, running asynchronously. Async.io has similar facilities uh, for running async processes, but uh, these async uh, subprocess facilities are not really up to par with, uh, say, multiprocessing, which has some additional niceties like uh, I think shared queues and uh, other synchronization primitives, mm -hmm. but they are still uh, pretty useful as they are. Yeah. So, so basically, you can just say any IO dot to process run sync, and you give it a function, and now you can await that subprocess multiprocessing. Yeah. There are the usual caveats like uh, because they don't share memory, then you have to serialize the arguments, and uh, that could be a problem in some cases. Sure. So basically it pickles the arguments and the return values and sends them over. Yeah. It could be even so that the, the arguments are picklable, but uh, the return value is not, uh, which uh, obviously causes some confusion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. People maybe hear that pickling is bad and you can have all sorts of challenges like code injection and whatnot from pickling through security stuff. This, I would think, is not really subject to that because it's you calling the yeah. function directly. And right, it's like completely just yeah, inside. There's no way to inject anything bad. Yeah, exactly. It's all the multiprocessing that's handling it anyway. So it should be okay. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Another one that is pretty exciting has to do with file support. So we have open in Python. You would say with open something as F, right? But that's there's no async equivalent, right? Yeah, these file facilities are really uh, just a convenience uh, that wraps uh, Around this uh, 
these file objects. Yeah. So if somebody wants to know, there is no actual async file IO happening because that's not really a thing on Linux and uh, even on Windows, it has terrible problems. Okay. So what's happening with this anyio.open file? It opens a file in a thread and then this uh, opens, this starts an async context manager that on exit closes the file. And it also closes the thread, I guess, right? Well, it uses throwaway threads. Okay. Basically from the thread pool. All right, I see. So it'll it'll async it'll use a thread to open the file and get the file handle and then throw away the thread. And then does it do something similar? Well on greed? return the thread to the pool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, return to the pool. Which is much better than creating it and throwing it away completely. Also that uh, read call is done in the thread. Okay. So it just is sort of a, a fancy layer over top of thread pool, but it's really, yeah. really nice. You write basically exactly the same code that you would write with uh, with regular open and a context manager, but the async version. Although I got to say the, the opening part of creating a context manager here, you say async with, which people are probably used to, and then async with await open file, which is, a, it's a bit of a mouthful. The reason for that is because you can just do await open file and then go about your business and then manually close the file. Got it. I'm not sure if there's a more convenient way to do this. I might be open to adding that to any IO, but for the moment, this is how you do it. Yeah, you could probably wrap it in some kind of class or something that's synchronous, but then has an A enter, but yeah, it's... <laughs> I'm not sure if it's totally worth it, but yeah, that's quite the the statement there. And the other area that's interesting about this is if you want to loop over it line for line, instead of doing a regular for loop, you can do an async for line in file and then read it asynchronously line by line, right? Yeah, so the a next method just uh, gets in the next line uh, in the worker side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is fantastic. So people are working with files, they definitely can check this out. And also related to that, is you have an asynchronous pathlib path. Yeah, that's a fairly recent addition. Yeah, it looks great. So you have like an async iterator, you have an async, is it a file, async read text, all built into the path, which, you know, is like what's built into a regular path, but not asynchronous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, quite nice. We're getting kind of short on time here. What else would you like to highlight here that's really important? I would like to highlight the streaming framework here because it, it's one of the unique things in NEIO. Okay, yeah, let's talk about it. Trio has its uh, channels and uh, then it has sockets and whatnot, but uh, NEIO has something that Trio doesn't have uh, and really uh, AsyncIO has uh, some kind of streaming uh, abstraction, but not quite on this level. In NEIO, we have... Uh, a stream abstract base class hierarchy. We have um, object streams and byte streams. The difference between these are that object streams can uh, have anything like uh, the integers, uh, strings, uh, any arbitrary objects, and byte streams have only bytes and um, they are modeled according to TCP. With byte streams, you can send a number of bytes or receive bytes, uh, but uh, they might be uh, chunked differently. Mm -hmm. These are abstract streams, so you can, uh, say, build a library that wraps another stream. Say you uh, build an SSH client that creates a tunnel, and it exposes that as a stream. So as so long as you are able to consume a stream, you don't have to care uh, how the stream is, uh, how the stream works internally or, or what other streams it wraps. A good example of a stream wrapper is uh, the TLS support. That's uh, right there. So TLS support in any IO can wrap any existing stream that uh, gives you bytes, even if it's an object, uh, 
whether it's on object on the, or byte stream. So it does the handshake uh, using the standard library. Actually, standard library contains this um, SenseIO protocol for TLS. Okay. SenseIO protocol, if you are uh, not aware of it, uh, it's um, basically a state machine without any actual IO calls. It's a very neat protocol implementation that lets you add whatever kind of IO layer you want on top of that. So this is what ADIO uses to implement TLS. So you have uh, both a listener and, uh, and a connect and a TLS uh, wrapper. So any kind of TLS, you, you can even do TLS on top of TLS if you like. <laughs> Not sure that's useful, but you can, you, you can do it. It's super encrypted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is very flexible. We have all sorts of streams, uh, even these unreliable streams, which are modeled uh, based on UDP. Oh, really? Okay. So UDP are, it's implemented uh, by this, uh, using these unreliable streams. I don't think there's any, there are any more unreliable streams uh, implementations than UDP. But yeah, there are, I'm really part of this uh, streaming class hierarchy. And it's too bad that there are no, no cool uh, projects to show off this uh, system. Mm -hmm. But maybe in the future, we will have. Another uh, thing that I would like to highlight is a uh, uh, system of typed attributes. That but has been really we, useful in practice. Yeah, before we moved on to the type attributes, let me just ask you real quickly, can I mm -hmm. use these streams and these bidirectional streams where you create like a, a send stream and a receive stream? Can we use those ac across like multiprocessing or to coordinate threads? I'm sure we could use it for threads, right? Sadly, no. Sadly, okay. no. This memory object stream is, uh, as they call it in Trio, a channel. Uh -huh. This is one of the most useful pieces of any IO, really. I use this every day at work. So these are basically queues on steroids. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. As Unlike async IO queues, you can actually close these. You can clone them. So you can have multiple tasks uh, waiting to receive something, like workers. We have, we have multiple senders. I see, like a producer-consumer where some things are put in, but there's like five workers who might grab a job and work on it. You can have five consumers and five producers all talking to each other. Yeah, and then you can just uh, iterate over them. Also not possible with queues. You can close the queues, sorry, streams, so that when you iterate on them, if the, all the other, other ends are closed, then the iterator just ends. Oh, wow. Okay. So if the send stream goes away, then the receive stream is, is done. It's at the end. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic, actually. I really like that. Yeah. I think this is also coming to... Go ahead. Sorry. Async IO. Okay. I think this is also coming to the standard library. Mm -hmm. Nice. All right. At some point. Last thing we probably have for, for time for here that you wanted to highlight is typed attributes. What's the story of typed attributes? If you knew about the Async IO extras in... Uh, I think they have both uh, in protocols and streams. For example, with TLS, you want to get the, the certificate uh, from the stream. Like uh, if you have negotiated the TLS stream, you want to get the client certificate, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a type safe way to do it. You can add any arbitrary extra attributes uh, to a stream, just uh, declare it in the extra attributes um, method. But the niftiest part here is that uh, it can work across wrap streams. A very good example is that uh, say you, you have a, stream that is uh, based on HTTP. You have an HTTP server and you have uh, access to a stream, let's say WebSockets. Mm -hmm. Then you want to get uh, the IP, client IP address. Well, usually you, you may have a, a front-end web server like Nginx at the front. Normally, what you would get uh, when you ask for an IP address, you actually get the IP address of the server. What you need to do is uh, look at the headers. This is something you can do transparently 
with these type attributes. So basically, wrap a stream that is that understands HTTP. You can have that handle the requests for the IP address, the remote IP address, and have it look at the headers and look for a forwarded header and return that instead. Nice. Let me see if I got this right here. So people are probably familiar mm-hmm. with Pydantic, and Pydantic allows you to create a class, and it says what types are in the class and the names and so on. And those serialize out a JSON message. It sounds to me like what this is built for is when I'm talking binary messages over a stream like a TCP stream, I can create a similar class that says, well, I expect a message that is a string and then a float, read that out of the stream. Is that right? Yeah. A good example here is um, if you go back to the streams part, text streams. Okay. So... This is something that uh, translates between bytes and uh, strings on the fly. Mm -hmm. So this is a perfect trivial example of a stream prepper. Okay. Yeah, so you have a a text receive stream that will do the the byte decoding. Yeah. Yeah, Very nice. And you don't have to care like uh, what's uh, downstream of that. And if you even if you have uh, three layers on top, you can just still ask for, say, client remote IP address. If there's a network stream somewhere downstream, that's the stream that will give you your answer. Cool. Yeah, the, the stream work here is really nice. There's a lot of things that are nice. The coordinating, the task groups, the coordinating limitations, like the, the with a limit, uh, limiter, capacity, capacity limiter. A lot, lot of cool building blocks on top of it. And also the fact that this runs against or integrates with regular async IO means you don't have to completely change your whole system in order to use it, right? Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, I think we're about out of time to talk about ADIO. Do you want to take 30 seconds and just give the elevator pitch for SQL A code gen? This is a really exciting project that you created here. Yeah. This is one of those uh, side projects that are on the verge of a major release. So what this does is uh, it uh, takes an existing database, it connects to an existing database, reflects the scheme schema uh, from that and then uh, writes model code for you. The next major version even supports data classes and uh, mm-hmm. other kinds of uh, formats. The SQL model it's one much is more the one that's most exciting for me because you know, that'll give you Pydantic models that use a SQL model, which is, is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so nice. What else? If you know, think if you're a, a consultant or you've, you talked about Java earlier, right? Imagine you've got a, like a Java code base and you want to do a proof of concept in Python and SQL model or SQL alchemy. And somebody says, well, why don't you try building a simple version that talks to our, our database? And if that thing has like a hundred tables and complicated relationships, it's it's no fun to sit down. Like a big portion of that project might be just modeling the database. And here I can just say SQL A code gen, connect to Postgres, boom, outcomes SQL Alchemy classes. That's a huge jump start for getting started. Or if you're a consultant yeah. jumping into a new project. Yeah, exactly. If you have a really large database and this this will save little hours of your time. Uh, at least hours, yes. <laughs> uh, and a lot of frustration, right? Because with like SQL Alchemy, you've got to have the model match the database just right. And this will do that for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Super cool project. TypeGuard is another one you have. Not super complicated, but yeah, uh, so- an interesting capability to grab on. Yeah. Also one of those uh, that are on major of a verge of a major release. I sadly have not had enough time to finish uh, the next major version. And uh, then there's, of course, Python 3.11, which brings a whole bunch of new features that I have not been 
able to yet incorporate okay. into TypeGuard. And uh, sadly, I also have not uh, started using it myself. It's it's a sad story, really. Yeah. Okay. But uh, <laughs> the premise is that you have this PyTest plugin. You activate it uh, during the test run, and then in addition to uh, you know static type checking your application, which you usually do with uh, MyPy, Pyrite, or what have you, you can also do runtime type checking because uh, the static tools don't always see the correct types. You might not be in control of that, right? You might write a library. Your library might have types declared on what it's supposed to take. The person consuming your library has no requirement to run MyPy, and they have no requirement to make sure what they typed matches what you said you expect. And because they're hints, they're not <laughs> compiled options in Python, it might, at runtime, you might get something you don't expect, even though you put a type there. Yeah, exactly. So this is how you get the runtime uh, assurance that you have the right type there. Nice. So all you do with this type guard library is you put an at type checked decorator on a function. The best way would be to use the import hook. Okay. So there's an import hook that will, that will automatically add these decorators while during the import, so you don't have to alter your code at all. Interesting. There are some open issues with that import hook, like uh, somebody reported that this uh, import hook is installed too late, that the modules uh, in question were already imported. So that's something I, I have yet to fix mm -hmm. or find a workaround for. Sure. That's the idea. Right, so you can either use the decorator and be somewhat guarded about how you're doing it and only apply to certain parts, like say your public API, or you could just say install import hook and then everything that gets imported gets wrapped in the type checked decorator. And what that does is, yeah. is it looks at the type hints and the declared return value and will raise an exception. If say you, you say that your function takes an integer and it's passed a string, that becomes a runtime error. Right. Or you can just uh, issue a warning. Sure. The warning may be nice, but it's still, I think it's pretty cool. It, you can opt into having Python type hints become enforced basically yeah what i use this uh, for is in the asphalt when i accept the uh, configuration for a component i use this uh, decorator uh, or rather an assert to check that the types uh, are correct so i don't uh, i don't raise any mysterious warning uh, type errors or value errors further down the line or, or even worse at runtime sure okay that's that's cool there is one of the features of asphalt or highlights is runtime type checking for development and testing to fail early when functions are called with incompatible arguments and can be disabled for zero overhead. So it sounds like, you know, you're maybe doing an import hook in development mode that's handling all this for you. Is that right? Well, actually, in this current version, I'm using the assert. So in case you didn't know, when you have asserts, they are normally run without any switches to Python. But if you run Python without the debug mode, then assets are not compiled in the bytecode. Mm. So just by using this switch, you can disable these ex potentially expensive assets. Yeah, okay. I didn't know that. I'm familiar with that from C and C Sharp and other compiled languages with their pragmas and, and that type of thing, but didn't realize that about Python asserts. Yeah, there's this one thing that actually, if you have this uh, code, if uh, under debug, and there's a bunch of code uh, under that block, that whole block gets omitted from the compiled code if you uh, run Python with the debug mode uh, disabled. Okay. Yeah, very cool. All right, Alex. Well, those are some cool additional projects. You know, I feel like the 
SQL A code gen. We almost could spend a whole bunch of other time on it. Another one is the AP scheduler. Again, could almost be its own show, but we're out of time for this one. So thanks so much for being here. Now, before you get out of here, I've got the two final questions to ask you. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor you do you use? I've been looking at the different editors uh, available, and uh, so far, PyCharm wins, hands down. Right on. I'm with you there. So it has so many of these uh, intelligent features and uh, what have you that, uh, for example, I use uh, its database features to browse to my database. Uh, I use its refactoring features to uh, to change my code relatively safely. Yeah. And its Docker support gives me uh, auto-completion. The list goes on and on and on. And uh, most uh, of these uh, ideas are not nearly as sophisticated. I agree. Excellent one. Now, uh, notable PyPI package. I mean, we talked about a bunch. You can recommend any of these we talked about, or you can uh, say some something else you found interesting. Well, I think I already mentioned Trio, but um, this is a difficult question, really. Maybe poetry. Okay, yeah, poetry. Yeah, poetry is something that I use for my application at work. It's the closest thing in Python to, say, Yarn. Mm-hmm. So I manage the dependencies uh, and lock down the dependencies using poetry. Uh, it's uh, quite handy for that. There are some... I have some issues with poetry, like uh, when I just need to update one dependency, it uh, updates them all and uh, uh, small issues like that. But other than that, it's great. Yeah, it looks looks really great. I know a lot of people are loving poetry. It's a good good recommendation there. All right, final call to action. People are interested in any IO. How do they get started? Well, uh, there's a somewhat of a uh, tutorial there. I really don't have a really long tutorial on I like Trio, so I'm heavily leaning on Trio's documentation here mm-hmm. because any IO has such a similar design to Trio, then uh, a lot of Trio's uh, manual can be used uh, to draw parallels to any IO. You can almost use Trio's uh, documentation, the tutorial, to learn how any IO works. Yeah, it's highly inspired, right? Any, anything else, uh, then uh, you should just come to Gitter. I think there's a link getting help yep. at the bottom. Okay, yeah. So there's a Gitter link uh, and I'm usually available there. Great. Okay, yeah, very, very nice. And I'm guessing you accept contributions? Sure. Yeah, so yeah, let's see over here. We've got, what is that, 33 contributors? So yeah, excellent. If people want to contribute to the project and maybe that's code or maybe even they could put together a tutorial or, or something like that if they're interested. Maybe, yeah, yeah. perhaps. Okay, excellent. Well. Thank you for all the cool libraries and taking the time to come share them with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Bye. Thanks everyone for listening. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Listen to an episode of Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat. Compiler unravels industry topics, trends, and things you've always wanted to know about tech through interviews with the people who know it best. Subscribe today by following talkpython.fm slash compiler. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, 
be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.